good morning to each of you. Certainly it's good to be with you this morning. And I can echo what Jim was saying. It's such a blessing to gather and to worship and fellowship together. And I trust as we look into God's word this morning, we can each be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with God as we strive to be a Christian in our heart, to be more like Jesus. This morning, I'd like to think about the subject of representation. What does it mean to represent something? And I had to think, you know, this year is the year for the Olympics, and every four years, athletes from all over the world gather together and compete in different uh, competitions, and each one of those athletes is representing a country. They have a, a uniform on of, with their country's name, and there's some national pride involved in that. Uh, how many medals did certain countries win? But they're, they're representing a country. And I had to think of ambassadors as well. Ambassadors are diplomats from, from countries, their governments send over into another country to represent their home country. And interestingly enough, looking at the front page of the Lancaster newspaper this morning, and, and the, the front page is about the, the US ambassador to Rwanda. And coincidentally, it's uh, what I was thinking about caught my attention. And basically, the ambassador's job is to represent his country abroad and its interests, economic opportunities, and helping out citizens who might be um, in there in trouble. It's the job of the ambassador, a representative in a foreign country. And I thought too about families. You know, sometimes there's a, a well-known family with an established reputation, it's a prominent family name, and they like to maintain that reputation and younger family members might hear things like, remember who you are. And sometimes you hear about family members who bring shame to a, a family name. There's a, a family that's, that's being represented by your name. So I'm going to have this, this same idea um, looking at us as Christians. What are we representing? And along with that, are we doing a good job? Are we accurately representing what we are called to? So I see this as a thread that runs through the Bible, and it shows up in a lot of different places. And as I was studying this and thinking about it, I encountered this, this theme a lot more than I first thought. So I'm going to do a brief overview of this theme in the Bible. And... I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said, and, and probably you could um, add, add some as well. Uh, I want to start by looking at a command that's given in the Bible, and, and it's, it's part of the Ten Commandments, so it's a command, but it's, it's really more of a warning. And I think it's often misunderstood. Um, I think there's a deeper meaning behind this command that we can easily miss. And that's, that's the third commandment. So you can turn with me to Exodus 20. So we look at 
the Ten Commandments, and specifically the Third Commandment. So the first time I heard about this was in South Dakota. There was a Baptist group that came into town. They wanted to have a service. They wanted a place to, to hold their service, and I agreed to let them use our building, and I figured, well, I should probably go and at least see what they're doing in our church building. And this, this, this one preacher had a couple, couple people getting up, and the one preacher got up and he starts talking about the third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's not talking about cursing. That's talking about the way you live and representing God and his name. And I heard that and I was like, you know what, that's exactly right. And recently I heard a couple more details from a Bible scholar on this, this topic. Uh, Carmen Imes actually wrote a book about this. Um, I, I have not read the book, but I heard her uh, talk about this, this theme. So I'm going to be referencing some of her work um, in, in this. Um, but Exodus 20, I think, is a good starting point. <clears throat> Ten Commandments. I won't read the, the first two. First commandment is don't, don't have any other gods before me. Second commandment is no uh, idols. And then verse 7, we see the third commandment. So Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. So I think a lot of times we just assume that this is talking about our speech and you know, don't say God's name in a disrespectful way. Take it to me, no cursing, no profanity. You think about profanity as taking something that is high and bringing it low. You're profaning it, you're making it common. And I think it includes this, yes, but it goes a lot deeper as well. And actually some Jewish interpreters long ago reading this um, actually took this as a, you know, a, a command not to say God's name. So they, would, with the, they wouldn't actually say God's name and they would put in um, different references to God so they wouldn't actually have to say his name. But the text itself doesn't actually mention anything about speech. It talks about taking a name. How do you, what does it mean to take a name? So I look, looked at the, the Hebrew word for, for this, nasa, and it means to lift up or to bear or carry. So it's talking about carrying God's name. That's actually most times how that word is translated. It's to, to bear something. So if you think about it in that way, it's a warning about bearing or carrying God's name in vain or to no effect. And I think another way that you could say this is don't misrepresent God. Or God is saying this about himself. And he's saying, don't misrepresent me. Don't live in a way that brings shame to God's name. So when I think about the setting for this, the context, who was this given to? This is in Exodus. So we're right after the deliverance from Egypt. God had delivered the Israelites out of their bondage in, in Egypt. 
and he brings them into freedom. And they, they come to Sinai, Mount Sinai here, and, and this is where God is setting up a covenant with his people, people of Israel, and it's a, an agreement. And really, it's a continuation of God's promise to Abraham. You look back in Genesis 12, God calls out Abraham, and he says to him, I'm going I'm to choose you. I'm going to bless you, and, and really, you, you and your descendants we're going to carry my blessing into the world. And I'm, I'm choosing your family to do this. And you can carry this story forward to Exodus. And, and we see God following through with his promise. He's taking care of his people, bringing them into freedom. And at Sinai here, he reaffirms his commitment to Israel. And he, he enters into a covenant with them. And actually, just the, the chapter before, we can see some of the details of this covenant, and I'll read uh, from Exodus 19, verses 4 and 6. 4 through 6, um, he's, God is saying, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So God is promising to hold Israel as a treasured possession. Uh, and how does he say it? A, a, a peculiar treasure. If they're willing to obey. There's, there's stipulations. If, if you obey my voice. You're going to be my special treasure. And there's a couple of verses later, we see Moses uh, relaying this message to the people, and they say, yes, all that the Lord has said we will do. Verse 8, we agree, we're in. And we can think of this as God choosing Israel as his own people in order to be his representatives in the world. And it's like God is putting his name or his mark of identification on the people of Israel. So I want to think about this idea of, of putting on a name. Why would God put his name on Israel? And to answer that, you know, we can think why anybody would put their name on something, because we, we do that as well. We put our name on things to, to mark them, to identify them as our own. I, get on the job site with other contractors sometimes and you have different people bringing tools in and oftentimes you will see a name written on a tool, a company name or individual's name and it's pretty, pretty easy to understand why they do that. It's to clear up any confusion. You know, if there are any questions about it, oh, that one's mine, it has my name on it. And we claim ownership by marking things with our name. And I think God was doing the same thing here. He has his chosen people, and he's marking them. He said, these, these people are mine. And he's, he's setting them apart. And that's what the word holy means, to set something apart. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 says, For you are a holy people. This is Moses talking to the children of Israel. He says, You are a holy people, to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people 
for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And here again, we see this idea of ownership. And, and of course, it's connected with obedience as well, with this covenant that God gave. God requires obedience. And, and yeah, he says, yes, you are my people. You are my special treasure, but you still have to obey. And, and I think we need to understand why God chooses people. And, and I think it's easy to misunderstand this concept of election. And I think it came up in our Sunday school lesson. Um, election, how, how does this all work? Does God choose people and then the rest are okay, you're just, you know, I, I haven't chosen you, you're off to the side. Um, th these are my people. Uh, I, I, I think that's a misunderstanding of election and, and Israel being a, a chosen nation. And I think rather it's more the idea of representatives and representation. God is choosing his people to represent him. These are my people. Now follow through with, with this covenant. And it's like he says to Abraham, this blessing that I'm going to give you is meant to go out. Uh, it's, it's, this is going to get bigger, and we're going to include all families. And that's, that's my understanding of election and, and the, this chosen nation. Um, I, you know, for me, it's been hard to wrestle through what all that means, and, and we can kind of get an a, um, inaccurate picture of what God is doing with, with election and choosing. Another passage I like to look at is in Numbers. Uh, we can look at Numbers chapter 6 and look at the, the high priestly blessing uh, that, that uh, God gives. I'll read verses 22 through 27. Numbers chapter 6, 22. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So we probably have heard this blessing before. It's, it's familiar to us. But what's often left out is verse 27 where he says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel. So God is explicitly putting his name on his people, and he's claiming ownership. So Israel as a nation was bearing God's name. They were carrying God's name. And that's where this warning comes in, Exodus 20, don't carry my name in vain. So how did it go? You know, this was the agreement. This was the covenant that God made with his people. Were they faithful in representing their God? Sometimes, yes. Uh, you look at some examples of uh, people who really lived this out. And at the same time, there were many stories of failure where God's name was brought low and profaned. We're just thinking about some of the good examples. I had to think of Joshua, 
you know, after they were defeated at Ai, you see his concern for God's name. He says, what will you do for your great name? He was concerned about God's reputation, God's name. And you think about David, the life of David, the man after God's own heart, and you can see that in his desire to magnify God's name. Thinking of the words of Psalm 34, uh, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. You know, that was his testimony. All through the Psalms you can see references to making God's name great. Solomon, in his dedication prayer for the temple, talks about how God's great name will be carried all, all throughout the world, spread all over, and, and people are going to come to Israel, to, to the temple, because of the fame of God's name. And I think that's what God wanted. God wanted that for his people, to make his name so special, so holy, that other people from far and wide are gonna be attracted, drawn in, join themselves with God's people. And there's many more examples that we could look at. I just had to think of Hebrews 11. You know, we know that as the faith chapter, the faith hall of fame, if you will. It lists out different people who demonstrated true faith in God, trusting God, even through adversity, and this was demonstrated by the lives that they lived. And I want to read actually one verse from Hebrews 11. I think it's a good time to reference this. It's hard to break in the middle of Hebrews 11. There's, there's a lot of, of good things in there, but I just want to pull out verse 16. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 16 says, But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So he's talking about these heroes of faith from the Old Testament. And it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. And I, I read that and it's, what a testimony. To have God claim you as one of his own. He's looking down and he says, yes, that one's mine. What a challenge. And I had to think of the testimony of Job. You know, that's what happened to Job. God was looking down at Job and, and he says, hey, have you noticed my servant, Job? That, that's my guy. God is not ashamed to be called their God. But you know, sometimes it goes the other way. And the conduct of God's people rather brings shame to God's name. And, and that's what happened to Israel as well. You need to look at the, the history of, of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. There were times of faithfulness. There were heroes of faith. But over time, Israel as a whole fell further and further from the covenant, from obedience, and they profaned God's name. They brought it low. And I want to read from Ezekiel chapter 36. As we think about uh, God's name being profaned, but then the promise of restoration. So Ezekiel is writing 
late in Israel's history, and it's actually right about the time of the exile, and he was actually writing from Babylon. He was with the first group of captives that were deported. And in Ezekiel here, we see a promise of restoration. You get to the end of the book, you see a promise of God restoring and rebuilding Israel. And actually, chapter 37 is the prophecy about the dry bones coming to life. And in Ezekiel 36, I'll read verses 16 to 23. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 16, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings, Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for the idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. And when they entered unto the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, these are the people of the Lord, and they are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sake, so house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. So he's talking about Israel's poor track record talks about them profaning his name, defiling the land, and that's what what, uh, resulted in the exile. And it says even among the heathen, you know, when they were deported, uh, foreign country, the heathen are talking about the Israelites and they're saying, these are God's people, but they're taken out of the land. It was a profaning and a bringing low of God's name. But at the same time, God gives a promise of renewal. He said in verse 20, 21, I had pity for my holy name, were concerned. I was concerned about my name, my reputation. And God says that he is going to sanctify. Verse 23, I'm going to sanctify or, or vindicate my name. I'm going to bring it back make it holy again. And as a result of this vindication of his name, the nations will know who God is because of his name being sanctified or made holy. And and in verse 23, it says that the heathen shall know that I am the Lord when I shall be sanctified in you. So he's still working through his people. God is jealous for his name. He desires his people to make his name holy. So what about us 
This was a brief look at God's people of Israel in the Old Testament, what God called them to, and the covenant that he gave to them, and the example that they left in relation to bearing God's name. And, and what about us? How do we apply this in our setting? Is the same idea true for us today? And the question is, are we bearing God's name? And I think the answer should be evident. First of all, in the name Christian that we take. <clears throat> so Christian means little Christ, or one who imitates Christ. So in, in that sense, yes, we are bearing the name of Christ on our lives. And I think if you want to dig even further, you could look into Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, where he talks about the Gentiles who are called by my name and his, his rebuilding and repairing of the tabernacle of David. And it's going to include the Gentiles. You know, this, this vision of God's people is growing. So do we find this same idea in the New Testament of faithfully bearing God's name? And I think it would be interesting to just open it up and see what comes to your mind. Is this idea in the New Testament? And I think, yes, it's definitely there. And uh, as, as I was <clears throat> studying this and thinking about it, I just kept thinking of more and more references and, and soon and everything fits in to this, this idea. And maybe after the service you can share some references that I missed. But I think it's the same idea that is communicated in the third commandment. Don't bear God's name in vain. So I want to read through a couple of these um, and then and I'll park on one a little bit, uh, a little bit more in depth. First of all, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Paul says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And that's, that's pretty clear. I mentioned ambassadors at the beginning. And, you know, it's pretty clear. Ambassadors are representatives in a different country. And Paul says we're ambassadors. We represent a different country. We represent our king, who's Jesus. And Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So there's a calling that we have. Are we walking worthy and living up to that calling, that vocation? 2 Timothy 2 verse 19 says, Let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There's a, a separation. If we're naming the name of Christ, if we take the name Christian, we depart from iniquity. That's not who we are. We leave that to the side. Uh, Philippians, I don't have this one written down. Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says that you may be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain neither labored in vain. Are we shining as lights sons of God without rebuke? Do we have that testimony? 
blameless and harmless. And the one I'd like to focus on, and you can turn with me to, to 1 Peter. I'll look at this one a little closer, and I, th- I think this one really pinpoints this idea of bearing God's name. And 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll read verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And I see this as just a clear picture of bearing God's name. The challenge continues to us. And Peter is basically quoting from some of these passages that I referenced earlier, Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 19, about being a, a chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, peculiar people. And now Peter is directing that at the church. And he says, you are that chosen generation. You look at the introduction to, to his letter, and he's addressing the elect, the, those who are called um, so the, the church, this is to the church. You are that chosen generation, that holy nation. And it's so that, or, or for the purpose of showing forth the praises of God. So this is why we are chosen. In verse 9, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So this is Peter's way of exhorting the believers, those in the church, to faithfully bear God's name. <clears throat> Verse 10 talks about, you know, before, you, you were not a people. You weren't the people of God, but now you're grafted in. You are part of the family of God. And because of that, this, this is how we have to act. We're God's people. We're showing forth God's praises. This is, is who we are. Verse 11, he calls us strangers and pilgrims, using the language of Hebrews 11. We're in a foreign land as ambassadors. We're representing our king. And because of that, we abstain from fleshly lusts, things that war against the soul. These are things that we're to avoid, fleshly lusts. You know, just uh, filling all our, our desires and, and our passions. He says there, there's things that we're to avoid. Verse 12, it affects our conversation, or you could say conduct. And, you know, the way that we live is affected. We live in such a way, and I just, 
am challenged by the way that he puts it, that the Gentiles, the unbelievers around us, are going to notice, and they're going to be drawn in. They're going to glorify God because of your conduct. The story is told of the Chinese communist government who they commissioned this author to write a biography about Hudson Taylor. And obviously coming from the atheist communist government, it's, it, it was intended to portray Hudson Taylor in a negative light. They, they wanted to bring down his reputation. And this author was studying into Hudson Taylor's life and just looking at his example of integrity and character and eventually he couldn't continue with a clear conscience. He couldn't carry out his assignment. And he actually resigned this commission and ended up becoming a Christian. And it was because of the testimony of Hudson Taylor. And I think that's right what Peter is talking about here. When they behold your good works, they're gonna glorify God. But does it always happen this way? No. Sometimes people just dislike Christians no matter what. Uh, But it's not the only story either of people observing the lives of Christians and just being moved to repentance themselves. Going from persecutor to being persecuted. It happens. The conduct of the people of God So how can we give glory to God by our conduct? I had to think of Wednesday night, the topic we heard about integrity, the discipline of integrity. We live in a world where integrity and honesty are not held very highly anymore. Are we being faithful to maintain that integrity? And last couple messages, I went through Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount and looking through Jesus' teachings the different values that he taught, the the difficult teachings that that he gives. And if it seems foreign to us, that's because it is. It's a different country that's represented. It's what it means to represent God's kingdom. It's different. And when we live lives of integrity and obedience to Jesus, it, it really does speak to people. And this is what God is looking for. It's what he means when he talks about sanctifying his name. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, we we pray, hallowed be your name, making your name holy. Are we making God's name holy with our life? So I'm gonna close with two contrasting images that are given in Revelation. Revelation 13 and 14, There's, there's two different names that are mentioned. And Revelation 13 might be one of the more well-known chapters. It's a chapter that talks about the beast and the mark of the beast. And I'll admit, there's a lot about Revelation that, that I don't understand. And I wish I had more clarity on how to understand Revelation, all the pictures and images that we see here. How do we understand it all? <clears throat> so I, this, this is not an exposition on Revelation 13, but as I was thinking about this theme of bearing God's name, my mind went to 
Revelation 13, what it says about the mark of the beast. And I know there's a lot of ideas about what the mark of the beast is. People have, you know, theories and try to connect dots. Um, but really, when you look at the text, it tells us what it is. And I'd like to read Revelation 13, uh, verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> and the context of this is, is the beast that comes up out of the out of the sea, out of, out of the earth. So there's there's two beasts that are referenced, and this the one that comes out of the earth is doing all these great signs and, and wonders and uh, deceiving and causing people to worship the first beast. And verse 16. I'll read this here just so I don't misquote anything. It says, he causes all, this beast causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. <clears throat> so with, with the King James wording here, it seems like it's three different options, you know, you can buy or sell if you have the mark or the name or the number. And I was reading this in, in some other translations and uh, there's, there's a couple that render it a little bit differently. And I'm gonna read what the ES, how the ESV says it. It says, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And honestly, I think that adds some clarity. It's not three different options, but it's the, the mark is the name or the number. And I think it's basically thinking about this question, whose are you? Who do you belong to? Whose name is on your life? And this, this passage here is talking about a time in the end when in order to participate in the economy, you need to have in some way the name of the beast on your life. And this whole thing about the number, you know, I'm not sure what all that is. I know it's, it's connected to the name though. So it's in some way, you have to be identified with the beast. <clears throat> so there is another name that we can bear, the name of the beast. And then there's a contrasting image given right afterwards so this is the end of Revelation 13. You look at chapter 14, and you see a different image. So it's, it's like John is looking over this side at the beast and everything that's happening over here. And then he turns and looks, and verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And it's, it's such a contrast. You know, there's those who have the name of the beast, and he looks and he sees those who have God's name on their foreheads. These are the ones who are bearing God's name. It's written on their forehead. And I, I think these images are connected, Revelation 13 and 14. Some are bearing the name of the beast, and some are bearing the name of God and its identification. Whose are you? Whose name are we bearing? And this morning, if you have been called by God and received his salvation, God has a claim of ownership on your life. 
his name is on you. And there's a life of obedience that's expected. There's a calling that we're expected to live up to, a vocation to walk worthy of. And we can read through the New Testament, we, we can see what that looks like, the character of, of God's people, humility, forgiveness, love, abstaining from fleshly lusts, departing from iniquity, and, and so much more. And in living that out, that's when we can bring glory to God's name and make his name great. John Piper gives the contrast between a microscope and a telescope. So both of these instruments are used to enlarge something, but a microscope is looking at something that is very small and enlarging it, whereas a telescope is looking at something far away. It's, it's really big, but you're making it appear as it actually is and you're not looking at something small. And, and we are like telescopes. We are magnifying God's name to show it for what it really is, how big it, it really is. So my challenge for this morning, for each one of us, am I bearing God's name faithfully? Do I show others by my conduct who God is? And I think the words of the third commandment still reach us today. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So may God give us wisdom and strength to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the examples that you have given to us that we can learn from. And this calling that you've given, the claim of ownership that you have on our lives. I pray that we could be faithful in living out that calling. Give us wisdom and strength to, to be that example, to make your name great in the way that we live. Pray that you would guide us as we go throughout this week. Give us wisdom and strength. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.